And we'll pick up a few pre-Christmas verses since we haven't been on been here on Wednesdays and since pre-Christmas. Let's go to a couple of verses in the Old Testament. Micah 5, which we developed right from the start in doing and living theology. Micah 5, Isaiah 9, Hebrews 1. We're generally rallying around Hebrews 1, 1 through about 2, 4 as a theological exegesis in doing and living theology, that, but that's very general. So this message has been developed since before December 15th, I think, but I have tweaked it a few times, including today. So let's take a couple moments of silent preparation. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to appear before your throne of grace and seek help in time of need. Our time of need is now, for without you we can do nothing. Without you we cannot understand this word of life that we're about to receive. With you, however, we expect confidently that we will not only understand, but also appropriate in a greater degree, who our hope is, our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. And it's in his name that we thank you for this opportunity. Amen. Micah 5, 2. Tonight's message would be simply entitled, The Son, or let's put it this way, A Son for us. But in between, it's the Son. I'll explain what I mean. The Son for us. This will bring up memories of Romans in the center of Romans where we dealt with divine promeity. And tonight we'll see the sun for us. Micah 5, 2. We came up with this translation beginning right at the beginning of doing and living theology. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are considered insignificant among the tribes of Judah, one will come from you to me. Yahweh the Father speaking here. That means he will come to you from come from you to me, having accomplished his divine mission to be ruler over Israel. And we know that the ruler over Israel, that's always universalized into the universal rulership over the universe. His going forth, or goings forth, plural, referring to his eternal divine procession, is from antiquity even from eternity. Here's a verse then that captures both the divine eternal procession of the Son from the Father and the historical divine mission of the Son sent from the Father, returning to the Father, having accomplished that mission. And we know that the accomplishment of that mission in cross-pollination with our doctrinal series is the summation of all things in Christ, the mystery of God's will to sum up everything in the heavens and earth in his son. Complementing this prophecy is Isaiah 9, 6 in the English translation, but it appears as 9, 5 in the Septuagint translation. And the Septuagint is almost, or a variation thereof, the Greek text is almost exclusively used by the writer of Hebrews, who is who displays characteristics both that are both apostolic and pastoral, pastor teacher. Isaiah nine six, which again is five, because a child is begotten for us. Please notice that for us, a son, and there we have. That wonderful word, huios. Now, let's do it this way. Huios in the Greek. A son is given to us. The authority will be on his shoulder. 
And we related that already to the cross, which he carried on his shoulder and upon which he was crucified. He will be called by the name messenger of the great intention. That's how the Greek text reads. Might be different from your English text. For I will bring peace upon the rulers. That's the rulers of all the nations. And peace and health upon him. A reference to his resurrection following the brutality of his crucifixion. Then verse 7, which is verse 6 in the Greek text. His authority is great. And there is no boundary for his peace. There's the universal horizon of the effect of his cross. As Colossians 1.20 says, God has made peace by the blood of his cross. And by that peace, reconciled every being in the heavens and the earth in him. So his authority is great and there is no boundary for his peace. As Jesus said to his disciples in Galilee, After his resurrection, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's pretty great authority. Upon the throne of David, his kingdom shall succeed and be upheld with righteousness and justice from this time to the ages. The zeal of the Lord of the armies will accomplish these things. Now Hebrews 1, where we're doing sort of a theological exegesis in our doing and living of theology. In fragmentary ways and by many tropes, that's literally what the Greek says, polytropos, many metaphors, many ways, many means like dreams and night visions and other ways and sometimes direct speech. God, who spoke long ago to our ancestors, or you could even say the fathers, in the prophets... During these last days has spoken finally and completely in a son and wheel and and it doesn't have an article. It's an anarthrous noun and wheel kind of like this from Isaiah nine. In fragmentary ways and by many tropes, God who spoke long ago to our ancestors in the prophets during these last days has spoken finally or completely in a son. In the Greek, there are five or six pi words here, so it kind of literally pops, and it's a way of getting attention. It's alliterative, and it gets our, the reader's attention. And maybe we'll take a look at that again. It's very interesting. During these last days has spoken finally and completely in a son and whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the universe. Verse three, who exists absolutely as the radiance of the Shekinah glory, the exact self representation of God, the father's substance, hypostasis substance. Now, the way that the author of Hebrews uses this word huios in the dative case, en huio, is reminiscent of how Isaiah uses the same word in the nominative case, huios, as we've seen. In Isaiah 9.5, the word is anarthrous, A-N-A-R-T-H-R-O-U-S, and it simply means it lacks an article. The lack of an article in the Greek, far from indicating some general or generic nature of a noun, like a son, any old son, sometimes, as in this case, dramatically accentuates its unique, one-of-a-kind nature, called monadic, M-O-N-A-D-I-C, one-of-a-kind, truly unique. And so a son may properly be translated here, the Son, the son, upon whose shoulder the sovereignty of the universe, which means that he governs by the law of the cross, which is self-sacrificing love. And in whom God has definitively spoken, finally spoken, fully spoken in these last days. 
By these last days, he means days of eschatological, Christological, soteriological fulfillment. So the sun here, or a sun, is not any old sun. In fact, he's not even a special sun. He's the one and only eternally begotten son whom God appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the universe who exists absolutely as the effulgence of the glory, the exact self-representation of God, the father's substance. And it goes on to say who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective. That's how I would translate that with a little expansion in the last part of verse three, who has made purification for sins as both priest and offering and has sat down contrary to the priest's who stood daily offering sacrifices that could not take away sin, this priest made one offering of himself and sat down. He sat down in the highest height of heaven at the right hand of the eternal majesty. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 is sort of like Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. You could spend the rest of your life just savoring it, expanding it, fanning it out in its totality. So it's, yeah, that son. That the son upholds the universe is a little different from what is said in Colossians 1.17, that he sustains the universe that he made. Here it means he upholds it, but he also bears it gently toward a a redemptive end. Everything that happens in it, without exception, is guided by the son toward a redemptive, salvific objective of divine, universal benevolence. So that's why I translated, he upholds and carries everything that happens in the universe and in all the ages toward an objective. Now that the sun upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective, Hebrews 1.3, correlates with our other series in Ephesians 1:11, it correlates with God speaking of the father who effects everything according to the unstoppable resolution of his will. So if you put Hebrews 1, 3 with the son's bearing of all things and carrying them, guiding them to this redemptive conclusion and the father's effecting everything according to this unstoppable resolution of his will shows that the father and the son are one in the action of what we call meticulous providence. A a theme I introduced recently. And uh, that term belongs to a theologian named Oliver Crisp. And that's not the name of a serial. It's the name of a theologian. And it means that he directs all things to a conclusion that is befitting eternal beneficence, benevolence toward all of created reality over all the course of time. So again, blend Hebrews 1.3 and Ephesians 1.11 because in turn, those two verses chime with Romans 8.28 in which all three persons of the Trinity are declared to be working together all things toward those whom God loves and to the ultimate good. We expanded that translation of Romans 8.28 in our Targumic translation of Romans, which will still be published someday. In Romans 8.28, it reads like this. On top of that, we know for sure that for those who love God, that is, those whom God loves. For those who love God are first loved by God, and God loves all of humanity. On top of that, therefore, we know for sure that those who love God, the one divine being God, who subsists as three persons, is synergizing all things to a divinely, benevolently intentioned end. By those whom God loves, I mean those who are the called, those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ 
and called into being as a new creation according to his purpose. That's a greatly expanded Romans 8.28. When Hebrews 1.3 and Ephesians 1.11 and Romans 8.28 are conflated, therefore, we essentially have a doctrine of meticulous providence. Now, meticulous providence, in the words of theologian Oliver Crisp, means simply that the scope of divine preservation, concurrence, and governance encompasses all that comes to pass. That's meticulous providence. Every single thing that comes to pass, whether by people call it by chance, which is a non-entity, it doesn't exist, or by fate, which is the servant of providence, whatever way it comes about, or by sinful and evil intent, it doesn't matter, all things without exception are guided and governed toward a benevolent end. Now, this is obvious at the cross where the most evil act of humanity and demons came together and was worked together for the universal salvation of angels and men. I mean, you can't beat the cross. You can't just can't do it. But that shows that everything, meticulous providence means every little thing, Every little thing she does. Oh, wait a minute. That's the Beatles. That's why I don't listen to music on the way down anymore because I get distracted. Every little thing. Meticulous providence. And so, in fact, that's Oliver Crisp's words. Meticulous providence means the scope of divine preservation, concurrence, and governance encompasses all that comes to pass. To me, this is a very comforting doctrine. The son in whom God has definitely and definitively spoken is the child whom Isaiah says was begotten for us. Now we're going to take a quantum leap forward in a moment. And also the son who was given to us. God loved the world so much that he gave to us his only eternally begotten son. This child begotten for us, this son given to us. Now, if we're to see this child as not only begotten in the Virgin Mary by the Spirit, and he was in Matthew 120, but begotten by the Father in eternity, then the astonishing truth would dawn on us that the eternal Son is eternally begotten to us and for us. So much is God for us. Our predestination to conformity to God's Son, the image of God's Son, is as eternal as the begetting of the Son. The son didn't just begin to be for us at some point in time or look down and say, oh, they need help, so let me go help them at some point in time. The son is for us in his very essence and from his eternal begetting. And this is almost hard to say because it's profound. It's that profound. I'll say it again. The astonishing truth is that the eternal son is eternally begotten to us and for us. So much is God for us. Our predestination to conformity with God's son is as eternal as the begetting of the son. That doesn't mean that we are as eternal as the begetting of the son, but it does mean that God's purpose in predestinating us to conformity to his son is as eternal as the begetting of the son. The son is for us in his very essence, his very eternal essence, his very substance, which is the self-representation of the father, as is the father eternally for us and the spirit. We cannot speak of God without speaking of God for us. There is no God, but God for us. 
the Son, is eternally begotten for us. Not just born on Christmas for us. Eternally begotten for us. The Son is eternally for us. The Father and the Son are for us. The Spirit is for us. So there is a thing called divine aseity in theology. Aseity. Divine aseity means that God is entirely self-existent. I am that I am. He's independent from and other than any created reality as the uncreated, uncaused cause of all things. That's his aseity. But there is divine Promeity, which I find to be just as phenomenal. Divine promeity. You can look to Romans for some of those studies we did on that. Which means that the self-existent God exists for the created objects of his love. In one sense, we could say... God says to us, I live for you. I died for you. I lived again for you. We pride ourselves in saying, I live for God. God lives for us. In a strange but wonderful way, we can say that not only was Jesus begotten by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, for us in terms of his humanity and incarnation. But we can also say that the eternal son of God is eternally begotten by the father for us. By so much, we can say that God is for us. And by us, I always like to use a double entendre, us, us, and us, U.S., universal salvation. By us, I mean all of humanity all of created reality, all beings without aseity who are dependent on God for their existence, their sustenance, and their destiny. And by so much, we can say, who can be against us? And the moment we say that, we have the emphatic rhetorical answer already in our hearts. No one. God is for us not only in his action. And by his providence, meticulous providence, he is for us in his essence, in his eternality. The child was born to us. He was born for us. God, the eternal word, was made flesh for us. But God, the eternal word, was eternally spoken for us, too. The child was born to us, and the son was eternally begotten for us. This is our vision of God. This is how I see God. We see a God who is eternally for us. We see the triune God as love. For God is, as to his act, the act of his essence, the eternal act of his essential being, love. How can the God who is for us be against us? How can the God who is for us allow any created entity to succeed against us? How can God who is for us let us succeed against ourselves for if our own heart condemns us and oh how often it does God is greater than our hearts he will not and he cannot allow anyone including ourselves to succeed against ourselves he is for us now let's get dialectical let's do dialectical theology which means there's objections to this there's always an objection. That's why we have dialectic theology. Someone may object and say, and they'll use the scripture for it. Watch how I do this. It's different. Well, what about when God says to Israel in Ezekiel 
It's just that it's an important verse. What does he say in Ezekiel 5.8? Let me quote it. This is what the Lord God says. See, I am against you. Oh, man. I am against you, Jerusalem. And I will execute judgments within you in the sight of the nations. Now, immediately, my mind goes, yeah, you sure did, the cross. But there's more to this. He goes on. Well, there's really not more to it than the cross. There never is. He goes on to describe terrible judgments, if you read Ezekiel, that will be brought on Jerusalem. So the objector says, how can you say God is for Jerusalem when such terrible things were prophesied against them? And when God specifically said, I am against you. I would answer that this is not a prophecy of Jerusalem's ultimate or eschatological destiny. That's how I would answer it at first. And then later in Ezekiel, the prophet says to his people, Israel, you say, you could almost say that's not the final word. Here's the final word. Ezekiel 36 says to the same people, verse nine, look, I am for you. And I will turn to you and you will be filled. You will be tilled rather cultivated and sown like a field. And then down in verse 26 of Ezekiel 36, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In verse 21, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This latter prophecy, Ezekiel 36, 9 and 26 and 27, and not the former prophecy, Ezekiel 5, 8 and following, has the note of eschatological finality. Like God spoke finally in his son, in Jesus Christ and him crucified. The same kind of thing happens in Jesus' denunciation of the generation which rejected him. I'll read Matthew 23, all of it, up to verse 38, where he concludes this denunciation and prediction of judgment in which he says, See, your house is left to you desolate. Your temple will be Minus a divine inhabitant. The judgment of Jerusalem, the AD 70 trajectory. But that's not the end of it. Everybody forgets 2339. After that, he says, I'm telling you, you will not see me again until you say, and you will, praised is the one who comes bearing the name Yahweh. And the name of the Lord means bearing the name Yahweh, which is Yeshua. The same people whose house will be left desolate will see him again, and they will say unanimously, praised, same word, eulogetos in Ephesians 1.3, praised is the one who comes with the name Yahweh, Jesus, Yeshua, the one we once rejected. That's the note of finality. Now, this kind of speech is throughout the writings of the prophets in whom God speaks univocally, not only of the restoration of Israel, but of the restoration of all things, as we have seen over and over and over again in Acts 3.21, for example. Not only the restoration or the coming forth of a new Jerusalem, but of the new creation of all things. Isaiah 65, 17, 66, 22, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Galatians 6, 15, Revelation 21, 5 and 6, for examples. Now, God may be against his own people in historical judgments, 
because he is ultimately and finally and eternally for them. In fact, there is no son who doesn't endure chastisement. Individually speaking, here's some principles for you that arise from dialectic. God resists or stands against the proud, but he gives greater grace to the humble. We know that from James 4, 6, which cites Proverbs 3, 34. And this, from that we understand he stands against the proud to humble them so that he can raise them up. We must not confuse, here's a principle, we must not confuse historical judgments with eternal destiny. This could open up a whole new study on the AD 70 trajectory, which is often confused with eternal destiny because Jesus is still speaking in an AD 70 trajectory when he speaks about the sheep and the goats, for example. And people confuse that historical judgment with an eternal destiny because the words like Colossus, which they translate falsely as punishment when it means purification and eternity, which they choose to translate it when it says fire from another world, purifying fire from another world, which is where the devil and his angels go as well as the goats purifying fire from another world, which we're all going to face. Incidentally, as Jesus said, everyone's going to be salted with fire Mark 9.49, that means the fire is going to come and test all of our works. It's going to just happen that way. But everyone is saved at the end of that. 1 Corinthians 3.13 and 3.15. Don't confuse historical judgments or the judgment of the evaluation with the eternal destiny. Our conviction that God saves all of humanity, I'll say mine at least, my conviction that God saves all of humanity and renews all of creation is rooted and grounded in our theology, which is why we're doing it. Or I'll say my theology if you want, if you don't want to adopt it for yourself. It's found in the doctrine of God. It's found in the doctrine of God's eternal essence. It's found in the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. It's found in the eternal spiration of the Spirit. It's found in the divine missions in which the universal saving significance of the triune God is manifested in the God-man, Jesus Christ, and in him crucified, and in him proclaimed by those who were crucified with him and know it and believe it and who live in a participation with the faithfulness of the risen and exalted Son of God. The divine missions are the divine processions, are the divine persons, are the divine relations, is the triune God for us. The child who is begotten for us and the son who is given to us is none other than the son in whom God has spoken finally. And completely, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he created the universe. Notice he uses eschatology before protology. He appointed him heir of all things, and through whom he created the universe, who exists absolutely as the effulgence or the radiance of the glory of the Father, the exact self-representation of God, the Father's substance. So the Son in whom God has spoken is the son in whom we were elected in love before the creation of the universe. Before God created the universe through his son, he elected you in his son. That's Ephesians 1.4. To be sanctified and without blemish before him. Jesus is the beloved in whom we possess redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the wealth of his grace that he caused to abound to us along with all wisdom and insight. 
by making known to us the mystery. Here's the cross-pollination into Sunday's service series. The mystery of his will according to his benevolent intention, which he intended in him, the beloved, for the administration of his household in the fullness of times to gather and sum up all things in Christ, things and beings in the heaven and things and beings on earth in him. Please notice the cross-pollination of doing and living theology with the doctrine of the mystery. Observe the infusion of Hebrews with Ephesians and of Ephesians with Hebrews. What are we doing? We're doing theology. More specifically, what we're doing is exegetical theology. Or theological exegesis. In the Son, the theme of Hebrews 1-2 chimes with 10 uses of in whom, in him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in the beloved, etc. in Ephesians 1-3-14. Again, in the Son, Hebrews 1-2 chimes together with Ephesians 1-3-14 in which 10 times in him is used. And this in turn chimes together with the passage and the message of the Bible in toto. The message of the Bible in its totality, which we've said three times. This is the third time I'll say it. Starts with N-R-K. Paul identifies this beginning as Jesus Christ in Colossians 1.18. The beginning, in the beginning. The last word in the Greek Bible in Revelation 22:21 is panton, which means all without exception. In Christ, all. That's the Bible. The summary of the message of the Bible. In Christ, all. And that's what Ephesians 1, 9 to 11 is saying. The mystery that God is making known to us that was made known and it kept silent. It was kept silent in the prophets because people read the prophets and they read Ezekiel 5, like we read it tonight, and assumed that there was a judgment that ended Israel. And they read all through, but they didn't see that what was being proclaimed in the whole thing, God only allowed it to speak up when Christ came, and now, still, is his desire and will an unstoppable resolution to sum up everything in Christ. In Christ, NRK, Pantone, heavens and earth, everything in Christ. So you want to do a Bible survey? There it is. It's pretty succinct. In Christ, all. Father, what's your plan? In Christ, all. Everything in my son. I don't think the father's sarcastic, but if I were the father, I'd say, is that all right with you? <laughs> Genesis 1-1, Alpha. Genesis 22-1, Omega. The beginning and the end. I am the beginning and the end, Jesus says. The eternal generation of the Son, then, by the Father, where we started off in DLT, is one of two divine processions, just to bring you up to speed. The second being the procession of the Spirit by spiration. The two divine missions follow the same logical order. First, the mission of the eternal Son, and then the mission of the eternal Spirit. The eternal relation of the Son to the Father is called filiation. That's F-I-L-I-A-T-I-O-N. Filiation. The eternal relation of the Father to the Son is called paternity. The Father is this eternal relation to the Son. I like what Athanasius said when all this was being debated and Arius was saying that, well, there was a time when the son wasn't, so there was a time when he came into being. And Athanasius says, no, the son is everything that the father is, except he's not the father. You think about that. I've thought about that ever since. I read it probably in 2007 or so. 
The son is everything that the father is, except he's not the father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. I'm everything that the father is, but I'm not the father. I'm the son. And so the father is this eternal relation called paternity, and the son is this eternal relation called filiation. And the relation to the father and the son by the spirit is called spiration. The divine eternal relations are identical to the very substance and essence of God. The divine missions are the divine processions, are the divine persons in relation, and they are the divine relations. And altogether, they are the divine substance operative with regard to a divine objective. That divine objective being the summing up of all of created reality over all of time in Christ. And this is the essence of the cross-pollination of doing and living theology, a theological study with the doctrine of the mystery, a doctrinal study. So the word hypostasis means substance. He is the self-impress of the Father's substance. The, the idea here is that something is put into clay and the impress is perfect. The impress is perfect. The impress of the son. He is the impress, or I like to say the very self-representation of the divine essence, the father's substance. So hypostasis there means substance. This word is deployed also in Hebrews 3.14 and in Hebrews 11.1. Hypostasis or hypostasis. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates that word as reality. Interestingly, in 3.14 and in 11.1. In Hebrews 11.1, the word appears in the first part of a two-part definition of faith. Now, faith is the hypostasis of things hoped for. Now, if you put that in terms of the subject, you being the subject with faith, then faith becomes your assurance of things hoped for. But if you put it in a metaphysical way where the faith is actually a substance, then your faith that you have is actually the very substance of that hope for reality right in your heart right now. It's all in there now. It's like the seed of the kingdom of God. So if we turn to the subject or the one who has faith, then the word hypostasis can mean assurance or confidence. It has that sense in Hebrews 3.14 where the idea is, and the pastor gets busy here exhorting, and he says, if we hold the confidence that we had at the start till the end, then we demonstrate that we are the companions of Christ because he didn't stop till he was done. He didn't stop till the end. I have finished the work that you've given me to do, Father, on the earth, and to tell us die finished you want to be a companion of Christ hold this confidence till the end of your life or till he comes and there is something about being a companion of Christ that will distinguish some people from other people in the eternal state so if you want to know about that yeah there is This holding of confidence that we had at the start is something that's possible only by continuing in the word. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. People quote that all the time. It makes me kind of slightly nauseated. I don't say nauseous because that means I'd make you sick. Nauseated means I'm sickened by it because they mean you got to tell the truth that did you steal that pack of lucky strikes from me? My father would say to me when I was 11. And I would say, no. Then he would say, then how come the carton on top of my dresser was built up? A pack was taken, then it was built up in the front. 
So that when I got to the last pack, it just kind of fell down there. He could have said, and he never did, because he wasn't that kind of a pious person. The truth will set you free. The truth did not set me free. The truth hurt. Because he did catch, I actually put out a cigarette in the trash can. And I thought it was out. You know, you do field strip it and you're, it's out. It wasn't out. The smoke was billowing when my father came home from work. And there was no way my sisters would have done it. They would have been, let's see, eight, five, and six or something like that at that time. I could have said, it was Becky. She was eight. It, there was no way I, could get, I couldn't get around at that time. See, the truth didn't set me free. The truth that he's talking about is the truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ. It's the truth that we find by continuing in the word, which we've done as a congregation. This is us. This is our history. And we've come to know the truth that all things are going to be embodied in him, even as all of divinity is embodied in him. All of created reality is to be embodied in him too, so that God will be all in all. That's the truth that makes you free. Now, this is the essence of the gospel. Faith, then, is a substance of things hoped for. Faith in that sense, now listen, I've not said these things before. Faith is the internal presence of that hope for reality. It's with you, all of it. Now, faith is the internal presence of that hoped-for reality. Faith is a substance. To have faith, then, is to have in the present moment the hoped-for things that the Scripture promises. The hope for things in sum and summary are all things comprised of Christ and indwelt by God the Father and the Spirit. To have faith is to have with us and in us the reality of those hope for things. It's not just something out there someday. It's something in us now. In other words, it is to have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, not in the future, but now, who is the hope of glory. The hope of those glorious things is in us already. Christ, and he is our faith. Our faith is Christ. When Christ came, faith came. When faith came, Christ came. Remember that from Galatians 3.23 and 25? When Christ came, faith came. When faith came, Christ came. To have faith is to have Christ in us, the hope of glory. In Colossians 1.27, for Christ Jesus is our hope. 1 Timothy 1.1. And when Christ came, faith came. Galatians 3.23-3.25. So certainly the word hypostasis has the sense of substance in Hebrews 1.3, it doesn't mean confidence there because we don't say that Jesus is the impress of the Father's confidence. He is the impress of the Father's substance, the very substance of his essence. So faith gets a meaning here that's more than just assurance. It's the very substance of the hope for world living right inside of you already now. So you wouldn't trade that for the world as it is now, would you? That's the reason for the martyrs. The martyrs died bravely because they simply had that hope for world in them. They wouldn't trade it for a million of the worlds that as they were right now. And I'm not saying that this world now as it is right now and this life as it is right now is not important. It's quite the contrary. People who go to funerals and they're told, oh, don't mourn, don't grieve. They, they're with the Lord. They're with, and you, you can't, for some reason, you know that, but you're still grieving. You better grieve. You have the right to grieve, and God requires that we grieve. Something in this life, knowing them, meant something. And you miss them. 
And you must grieve and you must weep and you must endure that grief. And so it's a phony thing when people say, oh, no grief at all. We're just happy. They're with the Lord. Then did you even ever know them? Is this life meaningful to you at all? Do you love them and do you really miss them? They're not going to be there tomorrow. They're not going to watch a movie with you. They're not going to be at the breakfast table. They're not going to be kidding you tomorrow. They're not going to be driving next to you. You can't grieve. Don't tell me you're a realistic Christian. You're a phony. We have to grieve. I don't buy that jumping around stuff. Yes, of course there's an internal joy that they're with the Lord and in the embrace of someone who loves them much more than you could ever do. But if you can't grieve, you haven't lived. You aren't human. You aren't in union with Christ in your fellowship with him at that moment. He wept when Lazarus passed. And he knew Lazarus was going to be coming out, even though stinking. In just a few minutes. This life means a lot. And the decisions we make in this life mean a lot. This is the only life where you make decisions, the effect of which can carry on into the ages to come. I don't know if the decisions I make in the ages to come will affect my life in the ages to come. I think this is the life where I make the decisions that affect the ages to come. Because this is the time when there's adversity. This is the time when we're in an agona of contention. This is a time when it's dialectic, when there's objections to every statement and every belief we have in faith. It's objected, it's accused, it's refused, it's maligned, and it's slandered. And yet we just carry on. That's pastoral. So, I'll just say this as we close. The hope for things in sum and summary are all things comprised of Christ. To have faith then, which is the hope for the substance of hope for things is to have Jesus as everything to us. To have faith is to be a created participant in the project of the uncreated creator, which is the restoration of all things and the redemption of time. How'd you like to be a participant in that project? You say, we, aren't, we have nothing to do with that. Well, if we weren't enlisted to be used in this project of the triune God, then the scripture wouldn't command us to redeem the time. In Ephesians 5.16. Faith is the reality, hypostasis, of what is hoped for. When Christ came, faith came. To have faith is to have Jesus as everything. When we have faith, we have the reality of what is hoped for. We have it in substance, in reality. We have Jesus who is reality. So living theology is ultimately a created participation in paternity. Never thought of that before, probably. A created participation in paternity. Be perfect as my father in heaven is perfect created participation in uncreated paternity. We become imitators of God the Father by walking as Christ walked because to see him is to see the Father. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. John 14, 9. To see us is to see Jesus manifested in our mortal bodies. Of course, that's not perfectly now. But that's to see the Father. Ephesians 5.1, Matthew 5.48, 1 
1 Thessalonians 3.12. The Father is perfect in love, which simply means that his love does not discriminate. It's undiscriminating. It's for all. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And so we become created participants in the uncreated creator in this project. Now here's a, here's some tracks to run on for things to come just to show you that we've got lots more to come on it. Theology. Besides the five notions in God, there is Lonergan's Trinitarian theology. A lot of what I'm doing is kind of a variation on the theme of not just repeating his theology, but he has what he calls a four point hypothesis. You're not going to get all this tonight, but you're going to get a hint of it. What is the four point hypothesis? Asked the teacher, Koheleth. In Lonergan's own words, this is the four-point hypothesis. You'll be able to pick up little pieces of the meaning of this. This is his quote from the Triune God Systematics, pages 471 and 473. 472 is Latin. That's why I did it that way. Now, first, there are four divine relations. This is Lonergan speaking. Really identical with the divine substance. And therefore, there are four very special modes that ground the external imitation of the divine substance. Next, there are four absolutely supernatural realities. Namely, the secondary act of existence of the incarnation, sanctifying grace, the habit of charity, and the light of glory. It would not be inappropriate, therefore, to say that the secondary act of existence of the incarnation is a created participation of paternity, and so it has a special relation to the Son. That sanctifying grace is a participation of active spiration, and so has a special relation to the Holy Spirit. That the habit of charity is a participation of the passive spiration, and so has a special relation to the Father and the Son. And that the light of glory is a participation of sonship, and so, in a most perfect way, brings the children of adoption back to the Father. Now, you have a disadvantage. I've been thinking about that paragraph for about eight years. I'm just hitting you with it now. In fact, the more perfect way that the light of glory brings the children of adoption back to the Father is by comprising them of Christ, the Son, through justification and glorification. This is me speaking now. Well, we couldn't tell the difference between you and Lonergan. Yes, you can. But that's Romans 5.18 and 8.30. Even now, Colossians 3.11 says of this renewed humanity that Christ is all, and he's in you all, or in all. But then in the eschatological moment called totelos, then comes the end, the eschatological moment, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. All things will be summed up in him and be comprised of him. That's the key word, comprised of him. Later, Lonergan writes and adds this on page 473 of the Triune God Systematics. But the divine nature common to the three, capital T-H-R-E-E, is intellectual. And just as God, by the divine intellect, knows the four real relations, so also by the divine intellect, together with the divine will, God can produce beings that are finite, yet similar to those four relations, and absolutely supernatural. Now, what I've done with this is taken it this way, to innovate on that. There are four created participations related to the four divine relations, simply. By a created participation of paternity through our relationship to the Son, we become imitators of God in Ephesians 5.1. We become perfect as our Father in the heavens is perfect, and that means simply in love. The Father's love is not discriminatory but universal. 
We are imitators of the Father's love in participating in paternity with a love that's universal. It is the love that sent the Son to reconcile his enemies. Now, this is where the parable of the vineyard owner and the wicked tenants comes in, Matthew 21, Mark 12. The owner of the vineyard first sent slaves or couriers to receive the first fruits of the vineyard from the tenants that rented out his vineyards. Those couriers or slaves were the prophets, as Jesus spoke of them. God spoke first in the prophets. The tenants beat and abused those servants and then killed some of them. These are the prophets in whom God spoke and in whom and whom the leaders of Israel continually rejected and killed. Some they even crucified. The owner finally sent his son. Whom they conspired against and killed outside the vineyard, outside the camp, outside the gate of Jerusalem where we're supposed to go. God loved the world of humankind, even those who murdered his son, even those who murdered his son. And by his son's death, he reconciled those enemies to himself. Romans 5.10. This is the God whom we imitate by graced imitation as an absolutely supernatural action. We have yet to be brought back to the Father in a most perfect way by bodily conformity to the image of his Son. But for now, we have sanctifying grace as a participation of active spiration, the Father and the Son breathing in us. I've come to this pulpit before, and I couldn't get a breath. I couldn't breathe well. I couldn't get a full breath. You know what my prayer was? Father, breathe in me. Breathe for me. Breathe in me. It was, I don't know what it was. It's sometimes public speaking. You get all wired and tachycardic and all the rest of it. And so I've said, please breathe. And, he's, and, and it's amazing. It would just calm down. And then I said, now speak through me. And live through me. And you get the feeling that maybe you died and Christ is living in you. That becomes kind of a real thing. But active spiration, the Father and the Son breathing the Spirit who pours out the love of God in your heart. That's a participation. Moreover, we have the habit of charity, which means we love. That's all. We love habitually. We love because he loved us first. We love because he loved us first. And that has a special relation to the Father and the Son. The love that is produced in us and through us as a product of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully to these last things. The love that is produced in us and through us as a product or fruit of the Holy Spirit is the good that overcomes the evil of this evil age. Redeem the time because the days are evil. It is the, it is the good that overcomes the evil. Romans twelve twenty one of this evil age. Galatians 1, 4. Making us created participants in paternity as imitators of the Father whose love is universal and manifested in the gift of his Son to us. His love is universal and manifested in the gift of his son to us because God loved the world so much that he gave his son. And so we become fathers. Doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man. Doesn't matter. Gender notwithstanding, John said, I write to you fathers. And fathers are simply those who have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you fathers. Fathers are those who beget children in the faith. As Paul said to Timothy, my own child in the faith. We become fathers in 1 John 2.14 because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. 
I am speaking today after 41 years of speaking here to some who are fathers, to some who are young men who have overcome the wicked one, to some who are fathers, because you've come to know the one who is from the beginning. And so the love of God, the father is so operative or I'll just say this to me. It's a forward thing. I'm looking forward to this. I don't have this all in hand at all. But the love of God the Father is become so operative in our hearts that we are not distracted by the contents of this cosmos, this world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life in 1 John 2.15 because these are not of the love of the Father. The love of the Father so overtakes us that we become undistractable disciples, learners, pupils of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing deters us from continuing in his word, from continuing in his grace in Acts 13, 43, from continuing in the faith in Acts 14, 22, because we know very well by now that nobody enters the kingdom of God except through some tribulation, some adversity, because we're living in the agona, which is the junction, the clashing junction of the ages. We must be assured of this more now than ever, that he's for us. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity to resume this series. In a month of Wednesdays, it became a challenge to me. Would this ever happen again? And it seemed by sight that it wouldn't, but it has. And we thank you, Father, for showing up tonight in your word, for showing up tonight in the person of the Spirit and the Son. And may this congregation indeed be classed as fathers who have come to know him who is from the beginning, who have come to know him who is love. And may we love as a habit because we have been loved eternally. And know it. We ask this in Jesus name. And thank you.